On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies? We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. Today, we are chatting with Amanda Bester-Siegel, who earned her MFA at the Michener Center for Writers at the University of Texas, specializing in fiction and screenwriting. Her nonfiction work has been published in the Three Penny Review, River Teeth, and Salon. Amanda lived in France for years before relocating to Austin. Her debut novel, The Caretakers, is out now. So we have the rare luxury of today is your publication day. Yes. It's a day that so many writers dream about, aspiring writers dream about. What has it been like for you today, the days leading up to this? Is it just a roller coaster? Yeah, it's wild to be here. I mean, my time zone right now, it's 10 a.m. So I've only been awake a few hours and it's it feels like my birthday. I'm just getting a lot of messages from everybody that I've ever known, which is really, really sweet. And yeah, I don't know how other people do pub day. I was kind of like, I have a lot of events later this week. So today I'm going to kind of take it easy. And I'm actually going to work right after this, like to my day job, because I was just figured like, oh, I'll just have a really normal day. So I feel like I'm kind of living a double life at the moment. But um, <laughs> but that's got to be yeah. surreal in itself, right? You're like, okay, I'm just going to try to act normal. But the trying to act normal implies this is not a normal day. It's kind of a really big special day. Yeah, I am really, really grateful that my workplace is extremely supportive and everyone's been really kind and excited for me. But yeah, it's been very weird the past few days putting my head down and working on this on this really unrelated to writing thing. I work at a kitten rescue, so it's like totally has nothing to do with my book. Yeah, super cute. It's as cute as it sounds, but um, (laughs) but yeah, it's definitely. I think it's actually been kind of healthy for me to like keep some of the excitement in check a little bit. But yeah, I'm really, really. It's just amazing that it's actually in the world and that people are holding it as a physical object. Like I never, it just, that cover is stunning. Yes. This thing that was in your mind and then on the page and is now out in the world. I mean, it is probably hard to celebrate and appreciate these moments, but I I hope you are because this is, this is a big day. Yeah pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about The Caretakers. Yeah. So The Caretakers is a book about a community of au pairs in the suburbs of Paris. It's an invented suburb. The book opens with the death of a child who was reportedly home alone with his au pair at the time of the incident. And it goes back in time and it explores the points of view of six different women in the community, three au pairs and three French women in the town. And that kind of mystery of what happened and exploring how how the relationships between these women led to this incident is kind of a through line of the book, but it's actually sort of less of a whodunit and more of a psychological study of these women and their relationship to caretaking, their relationship to each other, and how their kind of failure to communicate and connect with each other ends up having really tragic consequences. Yes, which is just a theme we happen to really love. You You hit so many of our juicy spots 
So you had talked in your acknowledgments about the seed of this book and coming from your time living in France, working as an au pair, and similarly situated working with a group of women that were doing the same thing. What was that seed of this story? And then how did you kind of nurture it and let it grow into what is this novel? So I worked as an au pair for a year in France, and then I ended up living there for several years after that. But that year that I was an au pair, the thing that really surprised me was how all of the other young women in this community, the kind of varied reasons that they had come to France and what they were looking for. I mean, as we know, like Paris is a pretty, it can be a very idealized place. And I think a lot of au pairs aren't necessarily moving to France because they're wanting to be professional caregivers. I think it's more that they just want to be in France. They have some idea of what France can give them. And it's and an opportunity. For a lot of people, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, some of those reasons were really complicated and sad. And I met a lot of people who had been through some really tough stuff kind of immediately before they decided to do this thing. And so I was just really curious about the sort of secret reasons that young women make this choice to leave everybody they know, and especially for older au pairs, so people who aren't 18, just the reasons that they do something that I think in some ways is not super societally cool. Like for some people, it's like, in my case, like I left my job, like I kind of just cut off my life at the knees to go do this because I, I I have my own reasons that I just needed to get out of my life. And so that seed was sort of this idea of like that moving to another place will somehow fix you or make you better. And then how complicated that is when in this particular situation, that escape takes the form of taking care of somebody's children. Because what ends up happening, I think, is a lot of people who are really in need of care are the ones who are the caretakers. Um, And in in a place where they are not fluent in the language, presumably are really relying on this family for everything, for housing, for knowing how to get around, health insurance. It's a very weird dynamic to be both employee and daughter or sister. And then especially for people who are kind of trying to escape something painful or trying to find a sense of belonging, like how fraught that is and how inherently impossible it is in some ways, I think, to truly belong when you're, you are to some extent the help. So that was kind of the seed for the book. And then I think just writing it over the course of many years, it kind of grew bigger. I think it started being much more focused on au pairs and then it, the perspectives kind of grew beyond that. But yeah, that seed really was my own time as an au pair and just seeing these complicated dynamics between families and these young women who were not forced to leave their countries. They made a choice. And what were they looking for? And why did they make that choice? Yeah. Oh, you've you've mentioned our favorite word several times already, <laughs> uh, which is complicated. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's our tagline. We're complicated. <laughs> and your book jacket actually says the caretakers is a poignant and suspenseful drama featuring complicated women. You had us right there. And, you know, you give us not just one, but six. So we're always curious with multiple points of view, who came first, maybe, of the women? Was there one that sort of was the first one to come to you? And then maybe if there was one that was more challenging to write or or how these six women sort of came to you and evolved? Yeah, they didn't come all at once. So at first it was Lou was the very first character who I wrote. She's the first point of view in the book. She's one of the au pairs. And I think in general, all of the au pairs came first and also Geraldine, who's their, their French teacher. And I think that was because at least for the au pairs, I started the book thinking like, what are all of these different kinds of people who come here, different kinds of reasons? 
reasons. And so I think through the different au pair characters, I was exploring people who don't necessarily have an attachment to France, but just want to like get away from their life. And this is a kind of cliched way to do that. Then versus like an au pair like Holly, who comes later in the book, who is very specifically attached to France. Like she believes that she fits in better to French culture. She's tried very hard to learn French. Like she really has a sort of more specific desire there that in some ways makes it harder for her to have a good time than the people who are just there to have fun. And so, yeah, the, I think the au pairs, I was exploring those different things. And then Geraldine was was there from the beginning. For me, as an au pair, the French classes were so seminal in terms of our the community. Like, it really was, that was where we met each other. That was where we all came together. And that relationship between teacher and students where it's just a different kind of caretaking. And that was something that I was really, really interested in exploring, both from the point of view of students, but also from the point of view of the teacher. Like, what is that relationship to them? And then, yeah... The points of view that came later for me were mother and daughter. So Charlotte and Natalie. Charlotte was actually the very, very last one to be in the book. That was not a point of view I thought would be in the book for years. And then I just, I I think I was scared to write her because in some ways she's the character who's the most different for me. And I, I wasn't sure I could do the mental gymnastics to get myself into somebody that different. And I'm so glad I did because it yes. ended up, it was so fun <laughs> to write yeah. her. Um, but it also, it just stretched me as a writer, I think. And I, I spent a lot of time sort of trying to, I think for all of these women, like writing from multiple points of view is just this really intense exercise in empathy. And so for her, for me, it was really figuring out like, okay, what situations would I have to be in in order to like have these kinds of reactions? What would drive me to this point? And really trying to sort of expand my idea of what a mother can be, like what those, the complications of those thoughts and, you know, how you can both love, but also feel really trapped and the kind of yeah. sacrifices that you make for your children and what happens if those sacrifices are acknowledged by the children. You know, it's like, there's so many aspects of motherhood that I think are really complicated. And that character ended up being a really fertile ground for me to explore some of that stuff in myself. So long, long way of answering. No. <laughs> Do you have a favorite? Are you not allowed to say that? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I'm, I think I, you can certainly have a favorite fictional character, I would think. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I honestly feel like every character was my favorite while I was writing that. So it's, it's kind of, it's like, I'd say Charlotte, but then I'd be like, Oh, but the Geraldine, Oh, but Lou, you (laughs) know, right. Right. Charlotte's just kind of the last one rooted in your, your mind. Yeah. She was, I mean, I think she was the most fun to write for sure. Like there were characters who were more or less fun. Like there were characters that weren't necessarily enjoyable to get into, but yeah, I was going to say, I'm going to note for Kate, cause we're going to talk about this on another <laughs> episode, but the link between, she said it was the most challenging character, but in hindsight, the most fun. So yeah, as Kate said, you had me at complicated women but I was also very secretly pleased that you have a character named Corinne. So there aren't many of us in literature other than flowers in the attic, which is not a great representation. <laughs> so I always get a little a, a little kick out of that. Also, as Kate mentioned, we have these six women, different points of view. And that's an exercise, as you said, in empathy. It's also a very unique way of storytelling. It's a, this polyphonic version of this is what happened as opposed to one person's view of events. I really enjoy this point of view. What made you think this is the way I have to tell the story? And when did you know? 
so I knew from the very, very beginning, like when I started writing Lou, I knew that this wasn't Lou's book. It was a book about a lot of people. And I think partly, I think I just am a sucker for multiple point of view stories. I love seeing the way people see reality in different ways, the way that affects our relationships with each other. But I think with this book specifically, because it is so much about miscommunication and misunderstanding, it made sense to me that we needed to be in these different people's minds and realities to really understand how they could miss each other so badly. I think like part of the book for me was kind of trying to understand how all these people who kind of want the same thing and are dealing with very similar flaws in themselves and desires and like how those people could somehow all manage to just miss each other again and again, and then sometimes even really hurt each other. And then how maybe they can start to come together. And I don't think I could have told that story with one point of view. It would have been about something different. Yeah, I do know. I I am very drawn to that storytelling as well. I first clued in with Celeste Ng's Little Fires Everywhere, which is not the same. It's, It's omniscient, really. So it's not you have separate chapters for each one and and it's a pretty close third not too tight but it's a close third and I was wondering if you had other books that you look to either for inspiration of what to do or what not to do that inspired this storytelling for you so one of the books that actually I read very early on that really was incredibly formative for me for this structure particularly was The Sweet Hereafter by Russell Banks, which I think is not his most well-known book, but it's, I mean, it's a very similar structure to mine. It opens with, basically, there's a really tragic bus accident in this very small town in upstate New York. And the book is told from maybe four or five points of view of the bus driver, um, a parent of a child who was on the bus, the point of view of a lawyer who comes to the town to try to represent the parents, a child who survived the bus accident. I get chills just talking about it. I love that book so much. But yeah, I love it. It's the way it's told is also it was the first book I'd read, I think, that was structured like this, where you don't weave between points of view, you don't flip back and forth, you get one, and then you get number two, and then you get number three. And I just thought it was such a powerful way when you're talking about especially a traumatic incident that affects a lot of people or that involved a lot of people. It was a really interesting way to unfold the story in the sense that you have one point of view, you have certain as a reader, you have certain ideas about what happened, who's at fault. Then you get another point of view and that gets really complicated. And then you get another point of view and that gets turned again. And I think that that's not something you can do as easily when you're weaving points of view. I think that's a much more kind of linear form of storytelling. But for this particular story, I was really interested in this idea of of having a really clear idea of a person and then having that subverted and then or deepened or you might have like certain ideas about Elena and then you get to her and realize that this is what's going on or Natalie or whatever. And so, yeah, for me, because it's a book about miscommunication and not understanding other people, that made sense to me that we would have certain characters who would be kind of mysterious or we would only see them from other people's points of view. And then we'd finally get to be in their head. I didn't want us to be in everyone's head from the beginning. Yeah. And there's a distance when you have that weaving in the omniscient, that kind of distance of, oh, look at them, look what they're doing. And when you do it in this close third separate way, you leave it to the reader to really understand what's going on and, and let their own impressions change as they read a different point of view. So I'm a, I'm a fan. So. <laughs> so the title of this book is The Caretakers, and that really hit a nerve for me, this theme. I've had the same nanny for my children for almost 13 years. So I really related to this, the themes of mothering and really caregiving, taking 
different forms beyond just the biological parent-child relationship. So I know you were an au pair, of course, but I'm curious sort of why for your debut novel, you really wanted to explore this relationship of child and non-familial caregiver and sort of what, from your own experiences, what you drew on from that. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it was the fact that I was au pair, but I think the reason I was so intrigued by it was because I, not to get too personal, but like I had lost my mom really shortly before I moved to France. And so when I moved to France, I didn't think I'm looking for a surrogate family. Like that wasn't a thought that I had, but I think being there, I realized that like, of course I kind of was like, I think it's hard to live with any family when you're that young and not feel some degree of wanting to be a part of it or wanting to belong in a certain way. yeah. Yeah. And that was really interesting for me to feel that way while I was also supposed to be in charge. Like I'm supposed to be the caretaker. (laughs) And I really did care very deeply about my host children But I also felt so incompetent sometimes. Like, I felt so young. I felt so immature. Like, I would think about the fact that I spent so much more time with these children than their mother did. And, like, I would feel this kind of weird pressure of, like, I hope they're not learning bad things from me, like, because they spent all this time with me. And and so I had never really had such an intense experience of caring for people who don't belong to me. And, like, the intensity of that and the complicated feeling of, I love them and I care about them and I want them to be good people and grow up in all these ways, but, like, they're not mine. I don't get to decide that. It's really complicated. And then, (laughs) you know, my relationships with the other au pairs, relationships with our teacher, who I think became a bit of a mother figure for us. Like there were just so many of these non-familial caregivers or people we wanted to be caregivers for us Mm -hmm. because we were really vulnerable. We were in a foreign place. And so much of that comes through in Lou's first chapter, I think. And it is a unique and interesting position because there is the au pairs as they live there, which is probably a big part of their lives. But if you add up the hours, the time they spend with the kids is a lot. My brother and sister-in-law had uh, an au pair from France. And so much of what you're describing is what I witnessed from them. She spent so much time with the kids, but then she had her group of au pairs from France and they would go away on the weekends and they, you know, talked on the phone and always speaking French, not English. And so I see this dynamic and I think it really hits home. We want to take a break from this interview to let you know about another podcast we love. I'm Tavia. And I'm Bianca. And we co-host the Book Club Girl podcast, where we chat about great books by awesome authors and our listeners ask the questions. This season, we're interviewing best-selling authors like Lucy Foley, Susan Elizabeth Phillips, and Sally Thorne. We will also talk to Punk Shepard, Bolu Babalola, and Vanessa Riley, and let's not forget Tracy Lifsey and Jenny Colgan. Join us every Wednesday. Season two is dropping now with nine new episodes. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media at Book Club Girl. Happy reading. And now back to the caretakers. So the caregivers, this is a common theme. Caregivers often, well, I'm not going to go there. We've been talking about infidelity from a lot of different angles lately. Um, I was like, how is she going to get from caregivers to infidelity? I I had a way and I was like, I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to go there. Okay. We've been talking about it recently because of the adaptation of Deep Water by Patricia Highsmith. We also talked about it in conversations with friends with Kate and I. We're very late to that train, but we're on it now. And obviously, I felt so much of it with Charlotte. And specifically, one thing we're really interested in looking at is what do you do when you know you can't love someone the way they need to be loved, but also you can't let them go? And so 
There's a, a moment when Charlotte says, Simon never asked her to fake love, and that mercy in itself had made her love Simon in whatever way she was capable, a man who knew the limits of what he could demand of her. Now, Simon has a different response to that, obviously, but this is what I'm saying. Charlotte knows she can't love Simon the way he needs, but she loves him very much in her own way, to her own limits, as you say. And there's a lot of different threads in this novel, because then that gets even more complicated. But there's infidelity as a means of getting love, a reason for leaving, a method of revenge. What were you interested in exploring around infidelity? So I think even broader than just infidelity in that kind of romantic sense or marital sense, for all of these characters, I'm interested in how they fixate on something that they think will be the solution to whatever problem they have. And in fact, it is absolutely not. And so from the beginning, I think that's what France is for a lot of these au pairs. In a way, they're cheating on their home countries with France because they think that France will somehow get them out of whatever is going on with them back home. And then I think we see that in the friendships. Yeah. And then Charlotte's is kind of the most direct infidelity as we think of it in terms of in her marriage. And I think for her, it's like her neighbor who she's sleeping with, that's her version of France for the au pairs. You know, it's not so much about that she loves this other person or that she wants to be with this other person. That's a total also reason to have infidelity that is in this book for me. I think I'm exploring specifically the side of feeling trapped in something and not knowing how to get what you need. And so there is this other thing or this other person. And you think if I can just have that, if I can conquer that, I'll feel like I have ascended like I've made it I'm okay and so I think for Charlotte in in both of her her marriages I think that's at play where there's a lot of good but there's also something in her that is always there that is this sort of fear of not being able to love or not being able to give other people what they need and so in some ways for her these affairs are safer because they are people who she doesn't feel like she owes anything to which is very different than how she feels about her children for example and so just to answer your question I think the part of infidelity that I was curious about in this book is infidelity as an exploration of something lower stakes to counteract the intensity of family and of what it means to love or not love people that you feel like you're supposed to love and the sort of safe escape of exploring something that ultimately like she doesn't owe this neighbor anything. She can feel like she's one if she seduces him, but there's no risk of her feeling incompetent emotionally, which is something that I think she struggles with a lot in her own family. Yeah. And you see in your book and also just generally when people do try to work it out when they're in that bad place, it comes out sideways. And we see that with with confrontation between Charlotte and Simon. So it is lower stakes, but it's almost like practice. Like you need to do that because to bring it back to the really intense thing is much harder. And so Mm -hmm. we could all use a little practice sometimes. Yeah, I love that. I hadn't thought about that before, but I think it's there's a moment in Charlotte's section where she finally confronts Simon about in a way that she hasn't been able to confront him. And it is directly following a rejection from this other person. And I think that that's linked. It's like, in some ways, it is like a practice zone. It's like the emo- the actual emotional hurt that I think really surprised her from that other person almost opened her up and made her vulnerable enough to be able to confront this in her own marriage in a way that she before was just kind of in this locked emotional space. 
So I wanted to just quickly ask about your path to publication, because the Michener Center is one of the most prestigious MFA programs, a three-year fully funded residency with no teaching duties, and it also encourages an interdisciplinary approach requiring candidates to elect a second form of study. So you elected fiction and screenwriting. I wanted to talk a little bit about your time there, because you had a book deal before you were done. Yes. So if you want to talk about any aspect of that, we'd love to hear. Yeah. Well, the Mr. Center changed my life. (laughs) I really, it was truly probably the best thing that's ever happened to me. I had been in France up until that point for most of my twenties. And I, yeah, I was just working a million jobs trying to finish this book. And I just, I was not going to finish it without some kind of time off. And I feel like it came in the most extreme, amazing way that I wouldn't have demanded that. But I think it's a really unique program because it doesn't feel very school-ish. It almost feels like a writing residency. So I spent the first two years just finishing the book and it's funny because I can't separate it from the pandemic. I didn't plan to necessarily send my book out during grad school, but COVID hit during my second year. And so I think I almost was just panicked. I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do when I graduate. Like there's no jobs. I have to put this book out like way earlier. I just have to try. Yeah. And so I ended up sending it out to agents right at the start of my third year. And then I had a very, very fairy tale, very quick, amazing, amazing agent who signed me pretty quickly, did one quick round of edits and then went out with it. So I ended up, it was like a month total between like joining with her and the book selling. So it was really fast. And yeah, that was the end of October. So I kind of, my whole third year was this very bizarre, like coasting, not coasting because I was still doing edits. I had an amazing editor. Like I was pretty deep in the book still, but it was definitely not a typical MFA experience. I think I didn't, I didn't spend that last year, like working on a thesis. I was kind of just like almost done early in a way. But I think part of that really was just like total fear of graduating (laughs) into a pandemic. Just like I, that'll light a fire, right? Some motivation (laughs) there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I have a random, I have no possible segue to this. Um, so I'm just, I, we're coming to the end. We have to ask this. So I saw an Instagram post of yours from a couple years ago in which you said 30 with six cats have finally reached my soul age. And from this point on, we'll be more immature each year. So on Pop Fiction Women, we have a very, very strong side interest in astrology. And we ask all our authors what's their sign and whether they relate to it. And so I was wondering if that was a birthday post, then I might know what your sign is, but I still have to ask. And I also am curious about this uh, soul age reference. Yeah. So I'm an Aries, but I am a cuspy. So my birthday is actually next week and it is. Oh, look, uh, she's holding. Wait, you too? Corinne is too. I am. I am. Yes. But But I'm cuspy on the other side. Yes, that's right. I'm close to Pisces. That's amazing. My, my best friend, her birthday is March 21st. So we're like the, yeah, I'm 23rd. That's amazing. Yeah. So actually, I I don't know a ton about astrology. I used to not relate to Aries at all. I was like, I don't like to be in charge of people. Like I'm pretty, I like to keep to myself. But I think as I've gotten older, I've realized that I I relate to it a lot. (laughs) And it's more, yeah, just a lot in so many ways. 
I get really fired up about stuff. That's funny. Um, Aries is definitely one of those signs that you can describe something and you're like, no, that's definitely not me. But then you put it in a different context. You're like, oh, yeah. And frankly, sometimes I'll speak for me. I won't speak for you. But sometimes that self-imposed isolation, I like to do things on my own, independent, is actually me wishing I could boss everybody around, but knowing I can't really and like, <laughs> and that it's worthless and it takes too much time and effort. So don't bother. But it still is comes from the fact that I would like to tell everybody what to do. <laughs> yeah. I like to be in charge of myself. Like I really, really, really don't like feeling trapped by other people, which is kind of was my way into Aries. I'm like, yes. okay, that, yes. yeah, that's yeah. Mm-hmm. very independent, but Oh yeah. So yeah, your soul, soul age. age. Yeah. Um, that wasn't like a belief I had ever. It was just that I noticed as I was reaching my late twenties that I was starting to become more like immature compared to my peers, I guess I would say. Like I think growing up I was always one of those kids that was told I was like old for my age or whatever, mature. And then in my late twenties I was living in France, working ridiculous jobs and like living in a hovel basically. And like my friends were all getting married and like having kids. So I was like, oh okay, I think I'm reaching the plateau of my maturity, as one would say. So I kind of felt when I was 30, like I think this is it. Really I've always been here, but I will not progress <laughs> this beyond this. Like yeah, I'll just right. get more cats, but that's that's pretty much, <laughs> Just pretty much it. I yeah. did the same thing. I was like so driven when I was younger, so ready to be a grown up, became a lawyer, was like full bore with the law. And then I was like, this is dumb. I'm just going to go back to doing what I want to do. Like, like I never did as a kid. <laughs> so yeah, I totally relate to that. I'm waiting for that. I'm waiting for that moment. No, <laughs> I just keep, I just keep She's getting older. I know, oh. I know, but three fire signs on here. This is, I like it. I like it. That's right. I like that. We like to boss people around too. So don't worry. Oh yes. <laughs> yes, that's true. I was thinking about the lighting, the fire under your ass of the pandemic. That was definitely a very Aries response, a typical yeah, Aries I, response. <laughs> I think it's funny now how much I was like, nah, I don't, I don't relate. Cause now I'm, it's annoying how, how frequently <laughs> I feel like, oh cool. It's <laughs> not yeah. annoying to us. Let me tell you. Very predictable. Yeah. (laughs) So our last question, we usually just ask what you're into. So I'll let you think about it. Like what you've been reading or watching TV shows, movies, whatever you're into that you want to share with us. So I was just looking at my phone and I was not intending to be rude. I wanted to look up something you had posted, which I loved and really highlights, I guess, (laughs) Americans either their over enthusiasm or their lack of a good vocabulary. But we'll let anyone decide that. But it says, it's a chart that says, when Americans say awesome, it means good. When they say fabulous, it means good. When they say amazing, it means good. When they say great, it means fine. When they say fine, it means bad. When they say okay, it means bad. When they say not so great, really bad. Challenging, driving me completely nuts. It's so funny, the whole thing. (laughs) It was cracking me up. I'm like, oh yeah, that's actually what's happening there. So we've also noticed a pattern on this show when we ask this final question. A little translation for you. I love means this is a friend I want to support, no matter how good the thing is or not. I absolutely love means this is a friend I want to support and it's good. I really loved means this is something I want to recommend so you know how smart or serious I am. And oh, you know what I loved means like I'm so fun and interesting and I just love this thing. (laughs) 
So uh, we, a good translation, right? Yeah, <laughs> it, it seems to be true. And look, we do it too. When you have a an outward face, you have to. It's not really a game, but it's you have to be involved in that and be aware of other people's feelings and also what you want to support and why and whose back you have. So now how is she supposed to phrase this? This is a I tough know, setup. I can't answer. No, <laughs> exactly. Now she can't answer. She's no. like, um. <laughs> I super duper. Lo- I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Just like say a book. Type yes, yeah. No, no preface. All around mm-hmm. it. You could just say I am reading. I am watching or whatever. <laughs> I am listening to. <laughs> Literal fact. Yes. I am yes. I love it. Well, okay. I am reading The Upstairs House by Julia Fine, uh-huh, which yeah. actually came out a bit ago. But I'm always a bit. I'm like a year behind in my reading. It's it's really terrible. But I really do love it. Which. <laughs> I don't, no, I don't remember what fair. that translates to. Yeah. It's fair. It, I didn't um, say that one. <laughs> okay, great. It is a, I don't want to spoil too much, but basically it is a horror story of sorts that is in the point of view of a woman who's going through postpartum depression. And for me, it's one of the first things I've read that I think really highlights some stuff around mental health and mm. giving birth that mm. I wish more people would talk about. And it's funny. Like, it's funny to be in the mind of somebody who's like seeing everything a little bit sideways. But it it's also just, I'm kind of in this point where I just really appreciate books that almost use genre to explore like really real things and i think this is kind of using horror in a really clever way to talk about postpartum so that's what i'm currently i love that reading. yeah that sounds like something I for say, us corinne Kate. that yeah. is yeah i think write that one down i do think it'd be up your alley she's not a very speaking of complicated i don't i don't think she comes not what we usually get i think when we look at mothers who have just given birth and are with their babies and yeah it's yeah. pretty it's pretty dark but I, I really like, we like it. that. We like that. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else? I am excited to read more than you'll ever know. Um, which oh, is by yes. Katie Gutierrez. That's coming out this summer. I think that's another one. I'm like, I'm truly just naming complicated lady books. Yeah, but it's, that's it. also my taste. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. That book I started and it's, I just, I can't stop turning pages, which is not something that I often, I feel like I read really slowly and it's so nice to be like, I, just have to know what happened. I want to devour um, this book. Yeah. Yeah, I really do. It's it is one of those like it's about really complicated women. It has infidelity in it. It has secret families. It has all these really propulsive aspects to it, but it's also I think saying some really smart things around true crime and like America's obsession with true crime, which is something that I have been really curious about and I'm just like excited to have more things written about that too. So Nice. Yeah, it just hits all the sweet spots, I think. I have an arc of that and we hope to have her on the podcast, I think in June. Yeah. So what are you working on now? Are you working on a new book? I am working on a new book. The seed of an idea? Yes. Yeah. I can't really tell. No, you don't have to. No. Just (laughs) how is it going? It's going. It's definitely weird to write a second book because I think the first book kind of arises very organically where it's, you know, you don't have a deadline. You're just like, I'm curious about this thing and I'm going to write it and it'll take forever. And this is a bit more like, all right, I got to write a second book. I'm cast. I'm like, I'm going to pick this and write about this. And so I'm still very much in the early stages of having that idea, but trying to give myself time to explore sort of more like why I'm really interested in it and what my personal access point is. So I think a lot before I start writing. So I'm in that thinking stage. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, good. A lot good. of brainstorming. Yeah. Love it. 
That's writing too, right? It is. Yes. Yeah. So The Caretakers is out now, so everyone can be reading that. Tell our listeners where they can find you. So I am on Instagram. That's the only social media place where I live. It's just Amanda Buster Siegel. I love hearing from people. I'm really bad at posting regularly, but I do respond to people's messages. So love interacting with people there. Oh, good to um, know. And then I just have my website, amandabusterseagull.com. In terms of the internet, those are the, the two spots. Good. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you both for having me. This is the best theme for a podcast I think I honestly ever came across. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed the show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at popfictionwomen or on Twitter at pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.